I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. This is Play Me, your digital theater. We transform the hottest contemporary plays into bingeable audio dramas. I'm Laura Mullen. And I'm Chris Tolley. Hi, and welcome to Play Me and Part 2 of Winners and Losers by Marcus Youssef and James Long. In Part 1 of Winners and Losers, we meet Marcus and James, two real-life friends engaged in a made-up game in which they debate whether people, places, and things are winners or losers. They argue about things like microwave ovens, Mexico, and then which of the two have the most street smarts. This is part two of Winners and Losers by Marcus Youssef and James Long. Warning, this episode contains strong language and may not be suitable for all audiences. You're dead. No. Not nearly as interesting as your father. Let's do something else. Okay, hang on. Isn't, isn't that a rule that if one of us does it, then the other has to? I thought we were just making this up. Yeah, we are. So let's make it up. Okay. Um, Stonehenge. Stonehenge. <laughs> okay, that's stupid. Whatever. Uh, loser. Stonehenge is a loser because um, because it's all by itself in a field. Druids hang out at Stonehenge. Druids are winners. Okay, what are we on? Are we doing druids or are we doing Stonehenge? Well, let's, okay, let's do druids. Um... You should want to do druids, Jamie. Aren't those? Isn't that your like creed? Isn't those your people, your race, or something? You don't call it pink and cloaked. Um, no, right, let's do <laughs> let's do uh, medieval battle guys. You know, the, do you know what I mean? They're like the anachronistic society, they're kind of like druids. You know, they dress up and do fake battles. Super fun guys. They're they are winners. Okay, honestly, show me someone with the time to go down into his basement and make a little knight suit and, and craft his little sword, and and I'll show you a loser. Bernie. Like Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders. Uh, Bernie Sanders is a loser. <laughs> Come on. It's Bernie Sanders is a massive winner. No, Bernie Sanders lost. Bernie Sanders is a loser. He lost. Yeah, no, and I love that. I love when people um, uh, criticize uh, radical activists or radical social movements uh, as like losers or whatever because they, they haven't succeeded in like changing the entire global system. Which was kind of a stated goal, no, right? Like, so how about the 99%, 1%, like that language, that way of describing how few people own how much that is, the fact that that's, I mean, it came from Occupy for sure, yeah. but the fact that it's a part of our global conversation embedded and deep now, that's entirely because of Bernie Sanders. Yeah. Yeah. And then this is Marcus talking about the 99% thing and Marcus loves the 99% thing because it allows him to lump himself in with the Mexican migrant laborers, right? And that's just not true. In fact, man, that's pretty fucking dangerous. Except uh, I'm pretty aware that I'm not a Mexican migrant laborer, Jamie. I mean, it's true. I may audition for one in film and TV every once in a while, but I mean, isn't that the point? Like that language that Bernie has popularized, like it, 
it creates a sense of solidarity across the 99% against the 1% that, I mean, as you know very well, has amassed more wealth in the past 30 years than at any other time in modern history. Yeah, but there is no... There's no solidarity inside the 99%, right? Like the, the, the Thai rice farmer right now isn't thinking about you or Bernie for that matter. And that's why Bernie <sighs> remains a loser. Worldly wise. Let's do worldly wise. Come on. Great. How about it? Worldly wise. Okay. So being worldly wise for me uh, means knowledge of the, like the shape and substance of our world. And also like really like a sense of history or context, like an understanding the, the events that we get all worked up about, like in, in the news or whatever, they've been going on for decades or centuries. And worldly wisdom is like an understanding that, that the people were told our enemies might have a point of view that's actually worth trying to understand. Because I believe that that is actually what allows us to act, to try to do things that might have some kind of impact on how our world is unfolding. So, um, okay, like for example, like, one of the great political conflicts of the 20th century was the Cold War, obviously. But, but what were the two forces battling for control inside the Russian Revolution? That would strike me as something that it is important to know, you know, in terms of having a sense of the arc or, or the shape of the 20th century and who won and who didn't. Inside the Russian Revolution? Yeah, like within the Soviet movement, that would be one. That's, that's a trivia question. Right, does this turn into a trivia? No, 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 I'm just I'm like posing questions that I think are useful to know. Or, for example, the political situation in the Middle East, which, I mean, I don't think anyone could argue hasn't been critically important for the globe over the past 100, 150 years. Sure, absolutely. But I'm, see, I'm just confused. I'm not sure if I should respond with questions about things that I've studied specifically and taken a great interest in. Or Sure, is, yeah, that would be great. No. no let's, let's just do your questions. The Soviet question, like who, who was fighting against who? I'd say Lenin was fighting against Stalin. No. After this? No, it was before that. Before that. Oh, you mean like with the Bolsheviks? You mean the Bolsheviks? Yes, the Bolsheviks. So so this is like pre-1918 or whatever, like, be, like before the revolution itself. After the Tsar fell, like what was the internal division? During the vacuum of power or whatever it was. Yeah, like who was fighting? Um, I would say it's, it's Trotsky and Lenin. And then Trotsky had to run off to Mexico and disappear. That's actually really impressive that you know that. Well, I saw it in Frida, starring Salma Hayek, as a matter of fact. Cool, but this... What I'm talking about predates that by about like three decades. Yeah, I'm doing pretty well so far, though, right? I got a, I got an answer and, and a movie <laughs> reference. What, what was your next question? So it's the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks. The other side was the Mensheviks. They were the ah, liberals. Yes. Thank you. The Mensheviks. It's yeah, the, the Bolsheviks were the radical. The old Mensheviks, sure thing. They were the radical. Great. Yes, the Bolsheviks were the radical faction, which I think is relevant um, because when we think about the Soviet Union, we think communism lost in the end of history and all that. But if like the Mensheviks win that factional conflict, the entire 20th century unfolds completely differently. Like, like think about all the things going on in the world right now, like ISIS, right? Sure. Bad dudes. But we don't, we don't talk much about how ISIS is often supported by our NATO allies, Turkey, because they both hate the Kurds or like how many members of ISIS are the same Sunnis that we supported when Iraq was fighting a proxy war against Iran. And like, never mind like Afghanistan, right? And the way the Mujahideen were trained by Reagan and all those guys were considered freedom okay, fighters. Man, you got it. You got it. You are worldly wise. Marcus loves to hang his little fez on his worldly wisdom. Oh, wow. You, Jamie, sometimes you are a total well, bastard. That's true. You do. Look, Marcus, I'm a curious man. I read the Globe and Mail. Okay. Granted, I go to the sports section first and then I, well, I go sports, entertainment, and then I float my way through the news. I'm, I'm a headlines type of fella. Marcus, question for you. What would happen if you were dropped off in the, in the, in the, in the middle of Stanley Park? Would you ever find your way out again? 
uh, that's not worldly wise. That's a kind of worldly wisdom. No, I think that's more like 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 Survivor West End Vancouver edition. That well, it depends on how you define your world, right? Yeah, yeah, I guess it does. And whether we actually inhabit the same world. I think we inhabit the same world, Jamie. Yes. This is our world right here, right? And you know everything. Although I'm very happy with my performance on your quiz, I got a half answer. What was your next question? It was uh, about the uh, global impact of the post-colonial history of the Middle East. Yes. Good answer. We'll be right back. Here's Shakespeare like you've never heard before. Here's your show. Play on podcasts are epic audio adventures reimagining timeless tales with award-winning actors. Double, double toil and trouble, fire burning cauldron bubble. Filet of a forest lake in the cauldron boil and bake. Listen today at playonpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you doing okay, Jamie? Huh? Um, I'm just wondering, are we good? Of course. Okay, great. Are you feeling anxious? <laughs> no. No? No. Do you, uh, do you want to ask me if I'm doing okay, like five different ways so you can feel better about yourself? No, I'm good, Jamie. I just, I thought I sensed a little anger in your worldly wise, but... Just like the fezes and stuff, but whatever, it's fine. So, you know what? I asked you if you were doing okay, and you said yes, I'm fine. And so that's great. I'm good. I'm glad. We're good. Okay, that's four asks. Do you want to get a fifth one in there? No, no, Jamie, I'm good. Good. Good, Marcus. I'm, I'm glad you feel good. Totally. And you know what? <laughs> I get it. Like, it's not totally fair when we do politics or the world, but <laughs> what I... No, what I don't... Okay, so I have complete respect for the things you know a lot about, Jamie, like the foodie stuff and music and culture, pop culture. Oh my God, pop culture. Like, you know so much about pop culture. I, I actually think that Jamie is about to get an official real PhD in Tom Cruise's wives. Oh, fuck off. Look, I read a Vanity Fair article once while I was sitting on a toilet about three years ago and it had one of those those funny little charts where they compared the three wives of Tom Cruise. I, I, I thought it was funny and I, and I made the mistake of then telling Marcus about it and now he lords it over me like some great anyways more importantly you know what i have to go pee i'm gonna take a pee uh so um that's the pee move it's a significant move um game's a lot less dynamic with me just talking on this mic all by myself So the house uh, next door to our house on Upper Napier Street, it's like that house in our neighborhood. I, I think most gentrifying neighborhoods have a house like this one. It's like the way the area used to be. The house is like more or less falling over. Total eyesore. That's what everyone else in the neighborhood calls it. And it is. It's got actual holes in the outer walls. At one point, 90% of the siding had fallen off this house and the guys who lived there came out with giant stacks of tar roofing shingles and they nailed them up around the entire house. It's like basically a de facto rooming house. And I have this reoccurring fantasy about this house. 
it like plays out in my head every once in a while, kind of randomly when I'm doing the dishes or whatever. And in this fantasy, I, I imagine that one of the rotating series of rough guys who lives in there breaks into our place. And in my fantasy, like he's fucked up on something and desperate, looking for money. Now, in our not-at-all eyesore-ish house, our kids' bedrooms are on the ground floor. And the kids scream out for me, which causes this guy to panic. And he grabs my eight-year-old son, Oscar. And in my fantasy, I, I rush downstairs to wear my T-shirt and my boxers. And I see the guy, and he's wigging out, clutching my kid and going, I'm going to hurt him. I'm going to hurt him if you don't back the fuck off. So, in my fantasy, the guy's got my kid. But I take a deep breath. I look this guy right in the eye. I make contact. Hey, I tell him, don't be scared. It's all good. And he's like, oh, I'm going to hurt your kid. I'm going to hurt your kid. But I maintain contact. My focus is unshakable. I'm not going to do anything, I tell him. I just want you to let my son go. He's just a kid. He's eight years old. And I think he's feeling really, really scared. And in my fantasy, through the haze of his panic and whatever he's on, I imagine that this reaches him somehow, this image of a scared child. It's like, oh, I don't want to hurt him, he says. And I go, of course you don't. He's just a kid. So I think you should let him go. And if you do, you can just take off. It's all good. I, I just want my son. And as the man's hand loosens and my son inches away from him, in my fantasy, I tighten my grip on the full-sized wooden baseball bat I've been hiding behind my back the entire time, and I aim a powerful swing that catches the fucker in the midriff and doubles him over, leaving him completely vulnerable to the precise blows I deliver to his back, shoulders, and hips, all specifically designed to inflict maximum pain without causing irreversible injury. Don't you move a fucking muscle, I whisper, standing over him listening to the sound of multiple police sirens speeding towards us, ready to take him away. The thing is, the guys next door, they're not scary at all. They're super poor. Their bodies are all kind of bent and haggard. They collect cans and bottles for a living. When I see them outside, on the sidewalk, outside our places, what they do is immediately look down. They cannot bring themselves to speak to me one look at somebody like me and what they do is submit because they're losers yeah and I'm the winner so I think it's important that those of us who are winning when we are winning take steps to mitigate the effects of that win on the losers as opposed to this fantasy like where I, I'm indulging in it like, this, like I'm the victim mm-hmm the guy at Joe's cafe on the drive who goes there every day by himself the crossword guy. Yeah. And mumbles to himself. Mumbles. Yeah, but at least coherent if you ask him a question. He's a very political fellow. Old left, hardcore communist, reads the New York Times, but I've been seeing that guy at Joe's every week for 20 years, and I know he is on the edge of no longer being able to take care of himself. Now what he does is he underlines every single word in the New York Times. It's behavior I've seen before in my mom. Early dementia stuff. I see him and I think, oh my God. What does it matter how outraged you are about what's in the New York Times? You have bigger problems than the New York Times. Your, your clothes are filthy, you're semi-incoherent, and you're still reading the New York Times. I see him, and what I think, what comes into my head, is loser. Oh, come on, Marcus. He's just a little old man doing the crossword and mumbling to himself. It makes him happy. That's... I know. Maybe it's because I know where he's going. <laughs> 
soon. The nursing home. Like my mom. I know what that looks like. 24 hours a day in bed, shitting in diapers, staring at a television, unable to move. Because in this culture, I think any kind of weakness, like poverty, disease, even just getting old, it's all treated like losing. Mm-hmm. Let's do my dad. Okay. That was part two of Winners and Losers, written and performed by Marcus Yusuf and James Long. The original theatrical production was directed by Chris Abram. Episode three is now available on Play Me. Winners and Losers was first produced by Theatre Replacement and New World Theatre in association with Crow's Theatre. It premiered at the Gateway Theatre Studio B in Richmond, British Columbia in 2012. This episode's sound design and edit are by Chris Tolley. Play Me is produced by Laura Mullen and Chris Tolley in partnership with CBC Podcasts. We'd love to know what you think about Play Me. You can email us at playme at cbc.ca. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Expect Theatre or Instagram at Play Me Podcast. And if you haven't already, please consider rating and reviewing us. It helps us get our podcast out to more listeners. Special thanks to our CBC producers, Fabiola Melendez-Carletti, Cecil Fernandez, and Tanya Springer. The executive producer of CBC Podcasts is Arif Narani. The senior director of audio innovation is Leslie Merklinger. Play Me is funded by the Canada Council for the Arts and the Ontario Arts Council. Play Me is an Expec Theatre production in partnership with CBC Podcasts. For more information about our plays, please visit playmepodcasts.com. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.